Welcome to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. This podcast is presented by the Heavy Duty Consulting Corporation and hosted by our CEO, Jamie Irvin. At the Heavy Duty Consulting Corporation, we work with manufacturers, distributors, and repair shops who want to grow their business. Do you have a problem that you would like some help with? We have developed fault codes for heavy duty parts businesses, just like they have for commercial trucks. Find out how many fault codes your business has and how you stack up against dozens of other heavy-duty parts businesses. Head to heavydutyconsulting.com and schedule a meeting with us today. All right, let's start this episode. You're listening to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. I'm your host, Jamie Irvin, and this is the place where we have conversations that empower heavy-duty people. Welcome to another episode of the Heavy Duty Parts Report. I'm your host, Jamie Irvin. Today, we're going to talk about battery electric vehicles. This is a subject of concern for people who operate commercial equipment, people who repair commercial equipment, and people who supply parts for commercial equipment. This is a subject we've talked about in the past, and I'm very happy to have our guest on. He's a repeat guest. James Cade is the founder of Asset and Maintenance Insights. Uh, If you recognize his name, He was on our live program back in episode 38 of HDPR Live, where we discussed the fleet's perspective on heavy-duty parts. He was a returning guest on the podcast in episode 231, where we talked about how fleets can get started with EVs. James is someone who provides subject matter expertise on BEVs, so I'm very happy to have him back on the show. James, welcome back to the Heavy-Duty Parts Report. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. So we get a chance to talk about battery electric vehicles, BEVs, again. You might also hear the acronym ICE. That's an internal combustion engine, just to get everybody straight on the terminology. Let's start by talking about the current mandates by the government for BEVs in the United States as it relates to commercial trucks. Uh, For those who maybe aren't aware, what are the current mandates? There's really not a, a over nationwide ba- uh, mandate. It's more of a patchwork of regulations across the USA. So as I said, there's no federal mandate, although there is a, uh, as part of the Federal uh, Inflation Reduction Act, there was lots of incentives that were provided to, uh, which included tax credits, grants, that were really meant to encourage the adoption of hybrid electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles, and fuel cell electric vehicles, another another term you'll hear a lot about. But the the current leader in implementing mandates for uh, EVs is is California, which is really not a surprise to anybody. And California is mandating the use of zero emission vehicles, which they lump together with battery electric vehicles or BEVs, fuel cell electric vehicles, FCEV. California has put in three main regulations in the last few years in an attempt to regulate and and really phase out ICE vehicles, uh, as Jamie mentioned, internal combustion engine vehicles. The first one, which has been around for a little while, was the advanced clean car rule, which requires that all cars sold in California by 2035 to be uh, zero emission or one of those two categories of vehicles I mentioned before. There's also the advanced clean truck rule, which is directed towards the OEMs, meaning the manufacturers of the vehicles, and it requires an increasing number of uh, zero emission vehicles to be sold in California starting as early as 2024. It affects the industry in different ways, and it's a very complicated process, but 
roughly about 50% of all new vehicles sold in California. I'm talking about uh, trucks sold in California must be zero emission by 2035 and 100% by 2045. The flip side to that is the advanced clean fleet rule, which, which directs fleets is to purchase these zero emission vehicles or battery electric vehicles and, and fuel cell electric vehicles. Again, it follows the same, basically the same rules or, or timeline as the, the clean truck rule, which the OEMs have to follow. Same thing again, is it basically says that all new trucks purchased in the state of California by 2035 have to be zero emission vehicles and 100% by 2045. Again, as I mentioned earlier, is there is a phased in approach and it affects different industry or sections of the industry in in different uh, timelines. So you have to really check the regulations to see where your particular uh, types of vehicles follow in. The most critical piece or the most one that's going to be implemented the first, I guess, is the drayage industry in California. Uh, as of January 1st, 2025, all new vehicles, and it's all new vehicles, to be registered for use in the drayage industry must be zero emission vehicles, which again goes back to they have to be battery electric vehicles or the fuel cell electric vehicles. And then finally, the um, most recent one, which was just actually this month, kind of a surprise to everyone was that California and the truck major truck OEMs entered into what's being called the Clean Truck Partnership. And in that is that uh, California, it's kind of, it was kind of a uh, compromise for both sides is that California actually agreed to bring their regulations in line with the federal EPA to uh, not to decrease NOx emissions until 2027 which is good for the industry because it creates one, uh, and this is on diesel engines, bring their regulations for NOx on diesel engines in line with the EPAs, and that uh, it's good for the country and that we create one standard, but it, it really the OEMs gave up some um, opportunities as well. So still trying to sort through all that. But the big thing is, is that by 2027, by lowering, requiring the reduction in NOx emissions, will increase the cost of a diesel-powered vehicle significantly, and that it will narrow the uh, price gap between an ICE vehicle and an EV or BEV vehicle. Now, I'm sure most of your most of your audience is listening to this and saying, oh, big deal, that's, that's California. That doesn't really impact me, for most of your listeners anyway. But the issue is, is that 17 other states either are actively or are or, or thinking about implementing California's rules. Uh, states such as New York, Massachusetts, and many others have actually implemented the rules and they they're actually have laws or regulations on the books that says whatever California does, we're going to do the same. So again, I, I would caution your uh, listeners to look at their state regulations and see where they are because again, a lot of states are following California's lead in this area. What impact does all of these mandates have on the adoption and acceptance of BEV? In other words, if it wasn't for the mandates, what uh, adoption rate do you think we would have versus what we're going to have? The mandates are definitely having an impact in California's requirements. I mean, that's especially in the state of California and the other states that may be following California's lead definitely has an impact. 
you know, there's other factors involved is uh, in a recent uh, survey published by Smart Energy Decisions, they found that there was a, when they went out and surveyed companies operating fleets, is they found that they're getting a lot of pressure from governments through the mandates, but also the financial community is talking to them about ESG requirements. Shareholders are also interested in reductions in, in emissions. Even employees are, are helping to drive those, drive those discussions. But I think the probably is just as important as the all the pressure they're getting is the the availability of uh, in volume of EVs now, especially in the light and medium duty sector. There's a lot of a uh, lot of vehicles being built uh, and purchased and going into service this year. So it's a, there's a lot of that going on. And you look at the you look at the investments that's being made. You know, Ford just announced a 50 billion dollar investment in battery technology, GM, $35 billion. And I think that's helping a lot of people uh, allay their fears that EVs are just a passing fad, and which is, you know, and that's all being helped by the fact that you see a lot of big companies like Amazon, which is um, a lot of uh, press on their 100,000 vehicle order from Rivion. Walmart recently placed a 4,500 4, truck order with uh, Canoe, and FedEx is piloting many, many vehicles around the uh, around the country. But I think also the federal tax credits, state incentives, you know, in California, uh, which is <laughs> way ahead of everybody else, in California is offering $120,000 in incentives to purchase a battery electric vehicle and $240,000 for a fuel cell electric vehicle. So it's not just the government mandating, I, I have a big impact on it, but I think there's lots of other factors that are driving the, the acceptance of EVs in our industry. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit about the go-to-market strategy for BEV or BEV uh, vehicles, the, the manufacturers of those vehicles. I noticed that when you listed those big mega fleets, you didn't list that they were buying a Kenworth or a Peterbilt, or they they weren't buying a an electric Cascadia. They're buying new brands. So what's the difference in the go-to-market strategy of these new battery uh, electric vehicle manufacturers who are entering the market? How does that differ from the traditional market or the traditional go-to-market strategy? Well, it's it's definitely you have what I call you know the legacy players, you know Daimler, Navistar, Volvo, Packard. You know they're doing the traditional thing they look at the the bevs being just or the evs just being another uh, product in their por- portfolio and using established dealers to uh, sell and service the the uh, the vehicles but the the one and I want to make a point about this is one of the things that I've seen difference with the legacy players is that they understand the marketplace they've been in it for years they understand how fleets w- work they understand what fleet needs are and they've made, most of them have made the decision that they're going to help fleets transition through the adoption of BEVs, you know, as, as by offering services and helping to assist fleets through that process. The, well, I, the other side of the coin, which you mentioned, was the startups. Um, startups have a different problem, is, is that they, most of them don't have existing dealer net, networks. And and what I found is that in most cases, it's um, they don't understand fleet operations, and they have a, f- a huge learning curve. And in some cases, has required uh, you know they come out with a vehicle, pilot it, whatever, and find that they 
they really missed the mark and they got to go back and redesign the vehicle in some cases. So there's a real lack of resources for the startups as well. I think they, uh, they concentrated so much on developing the vehicles that they have, have really not thought about the service side or the, the parts side or whatever. So it's really challenging for them for several reasons. And they, I think, are really looking at a different approach to fleets like you know Walmart, FedEx, and others that uh, the legacy fleets, uh, legacy players don't have to go through. Is it true, though, that they, by and large, these startup companies are looking at more of a direct-to-consumer, vertically integrated model and really cutting out, in their mind, the need for dealerships and, and aftermarket distributors and repair centers? In general, I would say yes. That is uh, pretty, what I've seen is that they're developing their own service networks with third parties, with uh, in market um, uh, strategies overall. Parts, I think, is really a, um, a problem for the startups is they don't have the, the built-in network distribution that a legacy player would have. And they're, they're really struggling with that. And a lot of them are trying to control parts themselves. You, know, you can't go down to your local Napa and get an AC to DC converter for a, uh, an EV. You have to go back to the manufacturer and hoping that they have that, uh, that part available. One of the things that I am seeing with the startups, with especially the startups, is that their downtime is not very good for, uh, for vehicles because if they have to wait on parts, and other things. So again, the I think the legacy players have a uh, some upside in, because they already have the network in place. Yeah, it's all fine and good to uh, vertically integrate, but the reality is then you're bumping up against right to repair rules, and you're not going to ever uh, stamp out the entrepreneurial spirit of Americans. So when there's a need, if you can't, if, you know, if people can't supply the part through a vertically integrated distribution network, they're they're going to go make it themselves and figure it out, right? So. I, I can see a lot of dynamics there where there's there's going to be new competitive uh, a new competitive landscape for the trucking industry as we move into this new world. It's going to be a challenge. I mean, especially with a lot of these parts are specially specially made for these vehicles. You know, all the way down to the common you know body parts and everything else is again. It's the what I see right now is the startups are controlling a lot of those parts distribution. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. This episode of the Heavy Duty Parts Report is brought to you by Find It Parts, your ultimate destination for heavy duty truck and trailer parts. Discover a vast range of parts at finditparts.com. Don't spend hours a day looking for parts. Instead, visit finditparts.com and get them right away. Parts availability and quality have a big influence on fleets and owner operators' total cost of operation. If they can't find a part, it means more downtime. If they install a low quality part and it fails, it means even more costs like tow bills, hotels, meals for the driver, and lost revenue. That's why we recommend Sampa. They manufacture a wide range of advanced parts for commercial vehicles. Their website has an intelligent product search engine and broad coverage of suspension, steering, and fifth wheel components. Expect more. Expect Sampa. Visit Sampa.com today. We're back from our break. Before the break, we were talking about government mandates, the impact that that is having on the adoption of battery electric vehicles or BEVs. We were talking about the differences in the way that the legacy manufacturers go to market versus the startups. 
And I'd like to spend a bit more time talking about parts and service. James, one of the things that we talked about is there's really two camps when it comes to how to approach service on BEVs. Could you explain to us what those two camps of thought are and uh, maybe then tell us which one you think is is the better one? You know, I've had I've had many discussions over the last year or two regarding how to develop and train technicians uh, for working on battery electric vehicles. There is a certain percentage, I don't know what it is, but there's a certain group within the uh, industry that believes we should go out and hire and develop battery electric vehicle technicians solely for battery electric vehicles. And going further, they believe that those technicians should be certified and even regulated by government agencies, such as like a, you know, you today you would do with an electrician or any other regulated trade. The other side is kind of where I fall, is that we need to, we've already have this big workforce of technicians that are out there, they're doing the work every day. Let's train those people to become the battery electric vehicle technicians of the future. And I feel this way for a couple of reasons. One is you just can't throw away a whole workforce. It's got years of experience and knows your company inside and out. So I think that's part of it. But again, the other thing is, is that you have even a battery electric vehicle still has components and systems that are similar to that of ice vehicles. So, you know, tires, wheels, brakes, body components, whatever. So those are still skills that we'll need. So why would you go out and hire a battery electric, this regulated technician, and then teach them how to do the other things that we're already doing? It makes more sense to me to take our existing technicians and train them, give them the skills to be the battery electric vehicle technicians of the future. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we have a shortage of people right now in our industry or anything. I mean, we're short technicians as it is. So then to try to spool up a whole other workforce, and we're talking about service technicians, but this also extends to the parts people that have to learn a completely new vehicle. But if you know how to identify parts, then you know, you've know you developed a core skill set that allows you to identify parts, no matter who the manufacturer is or what the part is. You can't just walk away from 20 or 30 years experience and expect someone with zero experience to be able to step into that person's shoes and take over. With parts identification is, you know, is a skill that has been developed over years. It will come with the same, same uh, challenges with the battery electric vehicles and parts people and will need to be able to pick up a part, identify it and be able to order that part from, from the manufacturer. So definitely is. There's a lot of skill there as well with the parts people that we need to keep going forward with battery electric vehicles. Right. And I mean, the one thing I will uh, say is we know that there's a large group of people that are very experienced that are on the cusp of retiring between now and 2030. The last of the baby boomers will all be roughly exiting the, the workforce by then. So I do see some logic in like maybe having some of your younger people who are mentoring under these experienced technicians have a maybe lean towards a specialty of learning BEV as well. But to lose that, uh, what some companies call tribal knowledge, right? That that knowledge that has been accrued over decades of, of experience and to not have that transfer over to the next generation, that's just crazy to me. I think I think that just spells 
doom and 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 all kinds of problems for a lot of people. Well, and the the other side of it here is that is uh, Mike Roth uh, from Acfi uh, mentions all the time is that we're in the middle of a messy transition. You know, we're it's going to be years in the in the process, years in in uh, getting from where we are to where we need to be, and we're going to need all the people that we can to, to be able to do this. And we need the skills that we have for ice vehicles because they're going to be around for many, many years yet. It's not going like tomorrow we're going to wake up. They're all going to be gone. They will be around for years and years. And, and we need the, the skills and the capabilities of those tech technicians. Many fleets will continue to operate ice vehicles with BEV vehicles in the same fleet, in the same location, probably Drivers transferring between them too. So again, they're, they're going to be around for quite a while, and it just makes sense to me to have the people we're using today transition to the vehicles of tomorrow. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the the hurdles that would prevent us from like flipping a switch and just making the switch to BEV. What would be the biggest issue with BEVs in the in the near to to midterm future? For me, it's uh, it's infrastructure development. To me, that's the largest challenge to uh, battery electric vehicle adoption. You know, you take anybody, whether you're operating your own car or if you're operating an over-the-road truck, you know, you want to be able to get the power to be able to to run that vehicle, and you don't want to wait all day to in a, in a place to get in line to to get power. So the infrastructure is is really um, a challenge. And there's two sides to that. And, and I think uh, John O'Leary, the uh, CEO of Daimler North America during the recent ACTEC Expo uh, said it best, is that we need to be doing this at the speed of right. Meaning we need to let the market drive the in- innovation here instead of trying to meet some arbitrary regulations. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of, the, one of those is that to meet the existing government re- regulations, you know, there's been several studies made by uh, all kinds of different pr- uh, pro and, and against uh, electric vehicles, looking at what how much electricity is going to need, need to be available when we transition the entire U.S. vehicle fleet to electricity. And what they found is that somewhere between 45 and 50 percent of today's current generation of electricity in the U.S would be needed to drive electric vehicles. And, you know, we're sitting here today already struggling to meet the energy demands of today. You know, I just read an article this morning that's talking about the uh, state of New York is facing a 446 megawatt shortage of electricity by 2025. How will that gap be filled, you know, with all the restrictions on fossil fuels, nuclear, and other sources? And they're struggling to figure that out. So again, is is just being able to provide the amount of electricity that's going to be needed is a is a big infrastructure gap that I see today. The second side of that is okay. Assume we have all the power that's available. We we solved that problem. How are we going to distribute? And if you look at it today, there's 162,000 chargers available in the U.S. today, with 78% of these though being level one or level two home chargers, meaning they're in somebody's garage and only used for their purpose. And to meet the, to fully meet the needs of an electrified uh, vehicle fleet, the U.S. will require about an estimated two and a half million chargers. 
more than 15 times the number of chargers available today. And that's according to S&P Global, uh, uh, a think tank. Another organization, Atlas Global, an industry resource organization, estimates that it will require more than 87 billion, billion, that's with a B, in investments to build out the required charging network to meet the EV demands in 20, by 2035. So, and where is all that capital is going to come from is, is the big question. Yeah, I go back to, I think, that John O'Leary's comment about doing it the speed of right is the correct approach to the infrastructure. Yeah. And when you start talking about some of the major players having issues with getting finances, you know, getting getting capital because of ESG compliance and, and that coming through the financial sector, you can you can start to see where there is so many layers to this. So you've got the environmental people talking about uh, climate change and 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 really taking a catastrophe kind of viewpoint. Um, you've got the financial sector with their ESG angle. What I worry about is I worry about some of these really critical decisions being made from an ideological perspective. And I think that's that's where we have an opportunity for for huge mistakes to be made that could really hurt a lot of people. So my last question to you, James, is do you see a scenario where the transition to BEVs lead to human flourishing for everyone? Because to me, that is the speed of right. What's what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I um as I mentioned, it's you know it's this transition is going to be is going to be messy. It's going to be frustrating. There's going to be a lot of uh, differences of opinions, but I, I see a time in the future where BEVs, battery electric vehicles, and maybe other competing technologies will certainly improve the health and well-being of of our population. Uh, although we face a lot of challenges in the coming years, I believe BEVs will have a positive impact on people's lives. I feel like there's a but there. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's just like anything. You you going through a transition. There's a lot of uh, a lot of challenges, a lot of frustration, and I think calling it the messy middle is is a good. That's the reason I I refer to it all the time by uh, and that's Mike Roth comes from Mike Roth from NACFI is I think it's a good description because it is going to be a messy transition. You don't do something like this. Uh, in the time frame that's been applied here, without it being getting really messy, but it, I think the we all have to keep our eye on the on the end or the prize, I guess, which is helping the uh, reduce emissions. Whether it will impact uh, global warming, that's another issue. But again, I just think from reducing the emissions will have a positive impact on people's health and livelihood in the future. You've been listening to the Heavy Duty Parts Report. I'm your host, Jamie Irvin, and we've been speaking with James Cade, the founder of Asset and Maintenance Insights. To learn more about AMI, visit fleetami.com. James, thank you so much for being on the Heavy Duty Parts Report again. It was a real pleasure speaking to you today. You too. Thank you. HCA Truck Pride is the heart of the independent parts and service channel. They have 750 parts stores and 450 service centers conveniently located across the U.S. and Canada. Visit heavydutypartsreport.com slash HDA Truck Pride today to find a location near you. Again, that's heavydutypartsreport.com slash HDA Truck Pride and let the heart of the independent service channel take care of your commercial equipment.